as well, but they are, according to this poem that I just cited, something like honesty amongst thieves. So we can find honesty after they rob the bank, then they fight with one another to divide the loot fairly (laughs) and evenly. So the kind of virtues like humility, tolerance, honesty, and so forth, these are universally accepted. Every thief and thieves accept that you should be honest at some point. That's my point. But when we take this, whether it be humility, tolerance, honesty, whatever virtue it may be, to the full its full measure, then we experience the fullness of the quality, and that can be done only when we move beyond the mask, if you will, of the mind, to get off the bumpy and reckless ride of the chariot of the mind, and allow the self to uh, to come out. So Kirtan is very much, of course, for that, uh, to help us in that regard. And so, talk about humility in relation to, to Kirtan, it's helpful to do that in relation to the teaching of Sri Chaitanya, as I said I would, because he has made in his Nam Dharma, and his like way of the name of God, so to speak, to give it a kind of an English rendering, Nam Dharma, he has made humility a uh, cardinal virtue for those who perform kirtan. He wrote a poem about it. Uh, actually, he wrote a nice uh, eight stands of poem one of the stanzas in which really focuses particularly on humility, but all of which are stressing it and in different degrees. I would like to speak about it in two degrees. In the first degree and in the second degree. The first degree, what I mean by that is a kind of humility that has the power to attract the absolute if you will. If you take kirtan, this chanting, you can see it's a very easy thing to do. As far as spiritual disciplines, kirtan is very user-friendly. Everyone, for example, has an ear for some music. People like to, to dance. People like to sing. People hum tunes to themselves in their minds in the shower. And again, life is about song, it's about sound, about music and so forth. So to have a spiritual practice that's rather than silent, which is has some value, to bring about a, a kind of a silence, if you will, of the mind through a method that we are already accustomed to, if you will. We're already accustomed to singing, to dancing and so forth. So to have a spiritual discipline that is, as I say, user-friendly, that's um, a distinct advantage. Chaitanya Dev, he said about this Nam Kirtan, things like this. He said, Nam Namakari Bahudhani Desarva Shakti Stataraarpita Niyamita Smarane Nakala. Niyamita Smarane Nakala. It means this name of God, the chanting of the name of God, this can be done any play, any call, any time, any time, like I say, in the shower, in the car. You can't meditate in the shower. I mean, in the the traditional sense of meditation, neither driving the car would be a good idea to close your eyes and focus on the tip of your nose only. So this is to, in explaining this 
this poetry, he even said, even while sleeping, if this chanting goes on, there will be benefit. So this is very, um, it's like a net, so to speak, to catch up so many people uh, effectively in, uh, in spiritual practice. So among spiritual practice, very, very user-friendly. He said, uh, there's no, there are no hard rules for it. Uh, just like with regard to mantra, if the guru gives a mantra, we should, he should give certain time that it should be chanted, certain time that it shouldn't be chanted, what direction to face, and so forth. And certain hygienic principles may, may govern the uh, appropriate and effective chanting, and so forth. And we, maybe you can't tell it to anybody. It has to be quiet and silent. Keep to yourself. And so many rules, and so forth. So with nam, a nam mantra, then... This, there are no, he said, there are, there are no rules for this in any condition, anywhere, anytime, any place. A number of things like this, he said, which if we hear them, we think, my goodness, this is, this is pretty generous dispensation from above reaching out to us in this way. It's said that God, the absolute, and the name of God are non-different. This is is an interesting theological uh, point, but just to help us get a real simple grasp on it, we ourselves have a name, and to a large extent, we are that name. We aren't different from it. When we hear it, we respond, just call my name, you know, and I'll be there. And uh, we have, nowadays we have a number, we have a social security number, for example, and if that's that's if somebody gets that, they've stolen your identity. They've got you. So even in the material sense, we are very much identified with our name, our number, and so forth. Now we, of course, we're taking it to a spiritual level, where where the name, the sound, and that which it seeks to describe wholly correspond. There's not the kind of duality that we have in material existence. Even amidst the duality of our name being different from us, as we can see, we're almost crossing the, crossing the line there. So, in spiritual dynamics, if you will, it's quite possible the name can be non-different than the named. But at the same time, there is a difference. And the difference is this, that the name is more generous than the named. If the named, the person, let's say God, was, or the absolute, was to express itself in a very generous way, to share its name with us by which it could be known. So, while we... Let us take Krishna, for example. I mean, we don't see Krishna. He's quite charming. We might see pictures and so forth, and people, mystics have, have said, I've seen Krishna, and they make a picture like this, or give a description, and someone depicts Krishna in art, and so forth, with cows and milkmaidens and blowing the flute, and all these things have quite a bit of significance. But we don't see Krishna, but the name of Krishna is available to us readily, even practically without asking. So it's a, 
a generous dispensation. The absolute is expressing itself in a very generous way through the name. So the difference, if you will, between the name and the name is that the name is a more is a more generous expression of the absolute than than, it, than itself, although the two are the same. <laughs> so this this generous dispensation, and, and as I say, very user friendly and so forth. In this way, we hear about this enough, and this is not something that's really relative to any particular sect, let's say, within, uh, within Hinduism, which is a very broad spiritual tradition. We can find this anywhere, practically. In any strand of, of Hinduism, we will find this, some emphasis, especially in the times in which we live, on the generosity of the name, that it, how facile, how easy, how readily available the absolute becomes through Nam Kirtan. So if we hear these things enough, and it's not hard if, if we read a little bit or keep good association, then, as Chaitanya Dev said, listen, there's no hard, there's no fast rules in this. There's many names for that matter. They're all full of Shakti, Cyber Shakti. All, all the Shakti of the God is present in the name of God. Then he says, all this encouragement is coming. You think, well, this is, he's speaking in such a way, you think, wow, this is really, I should do this. I should sign on for this kind of uh, spiritual practice. But then he says, Nam nama kari bahudani disarva shakti tatarapita niyamita smarane nakala. Eta adrishi tabakripa bhagavan mamapi duddaivam idrishami hadani nanuraga. He uses the word duddaivam. It means, oh, I'm so unfortunate. And when he said this, in his poetry, he swelled up with humility, a certain kind of humility. What is that humility? The humility is this. He said, in spite of the fact that the name is so generous, so user-friendly, such a, a merciful dispensation of divinity, the fact of the matter is, if I really analyze myself, I have no interest in it. If I understand how generous it is, how what a great opportunity it is to take part in, in kirtan, I have really no attraction. Maybe I come once a month or something, or you know, maybe, or not even that. And even when I come, and I'm, I'm thinking, when will it be over? And, you know, and what time is it? And and so I find myself like this. Therefore, do I am very. It means unfor- unfortunate, unlucky. It indicates some kind of like there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. I'm maybe even misbehaved. I'm, I'm kind of going in the wrong direction. And even though I can intellectually understand these things, look at me. I'm, I'm not drawn to it like a magnet, like I should be. Such an, a golden opportunity, a window out and beyond the limitations of the, of the small world of my mind. And it's such an easy way. So analyzing himself like this, speaking like like one of us, for our benefit. He said, nanuraga. This is my misfortune. And so a kind of humility swelled up inside of him. And the idea is something like this, this kind of humility, this stage of humility. This kind of humility is coming from our mind, but in a good way. It's coming from our intellect, mental system, if you will, with the help of good, good reasoning and clear thinking, 
we think, oh goodness, I'm unfortunate, I'm misbehaved, I have no attraction for this, and so what to do? Some thoughtful, intelligent, honest person becomes a little humble. Because why? If I'm a misbehaved person, if a good opportunity comes to me and I don't take advantage of it, but then I realize that even though I can't do much about it, so I express myself, I, I humble myself before a great person who offers me a great opportunity, then the greatness of that person will mandate that that person will nonetheless, in spite of my disqualification, be generously and more so disposed towards me. In other words, the last thing you can do is at least can make a confession. Tell the truth anyway. Be honest about it. Okay, I'm nowhere. I'm nothing. I, I have, I have, I'm actually not attracted to this. And this is this kind of humility, if you will. It's it's compelling. There's nothing else we can do, and this is our condition. How are we going to change that? Our way of changing ourselves is through divine dispensation. When Godhead reaches out to us, there's possibility for our lives changing categorically. On our own, the maze of karma is not such that we can extricate ourselves. It's really a maze. It's like, oh, they say, what a web you weave when at first you choose to deceive, something like that. So the whole lot of material life is a kind of a deception. I mean, we're deceiving ourselves. We're thinking, I'm an American, I'm an Indian, I'm black, I'm white, I'm a man, I'm a woman. These are all really deceptions. It's not what we are. And from there, so many things we extrapolate, a whole life and sense of what's important and who we are and what the world is and so forth. It's a web of deception. Very, very difficult to get out. We need divine intervention, if you will, to escape the web of our karmic implication that we've woven by our misbehavior, if you will. So to acknowledge that and with some humility come forward, then this kind of humility, they will naturally attract the name of Krishna. If the name of Krishna is a form of divine dispensation that can take us out of the web and a very generous dispensation, as I've mentioned, then our hope lies in staying connected with that in continuing to have the opportunity to, to chant and, and go deeper into that and so forth. So, this name comes to us of its own accord. Again, it's divine dispensation, so it's Godhead reaching out to us in this world. It's not an ordinary sound. So he's reached out, we have no attraction, we've heard a theory about it and it sounds great and we even perhaps agree with it intellectually, so, but still we have, we have no interest, no attraction. So we, we think, oh, I should be humble, I should be embarrassed. This kind of humility, if you will, exercised with good reasoning, that will attract the name to stay with us in spite of our condition. And that's our only hope, then, for, coming, for overcoming our condition. So there's power in this kind of humility. It's the kind of power that a, if you will, a negative magnetic pole has in relation to a positive magnetic pole. God is 
supreme Purush, positive, asserter, everything coming from God. We are on the other side. We are something that God has asserted, if you will. Prakriti, we call it in Sanskrit. Purusha and Prakriti. So, if we be, try to become a pusher, an aggressor, an enjoyer, th- this will be like repelling the absolute, like two positive poles. And it will be like this. Big positive pole here, God. Another one here, very small, artificial enjoyer. And so it will be pushed like this. You understand? Far away. That will be very unattractive to the name. But if we come on the other side and develop negativity, if you will, like a, like a neediness, humility, I'm, I'm in need, there's no hope for me. My only hope is to lift my hands and hope for grace, or something like that. Then that will naturally attract the name. So with that kind of mood there's of humility, there's power. It's a thought-out kind of humility. It's well-reasoned. I should be humble, considering what's come before me, what opportunity. And although that humility in and of itself doesn't qualify me, extricate me from my situation, it compels the name to stay with me. And gradually then, there's hope through such kirtan of the name that the effect will start uh, come about. And that effect will be a cleansing, if you will, of the heart of desires, interests, all relative to the world that I've kind of made up in my mind, in which I happen to be the center, conveniently. Uh, this will all be st- start to be cleared away in my a clearer idea of, of what I am uh, will come to bear. And then what happens as this clearing, if you will, kind of second stage comes on, then some steadiness in the chanting will come, some ability to sit for some time, and eagerness for the next opportunity, and, uh, and uh, taking it home with you, and, and so forth. And then some, what do we call, uh, like nishta, some steadiness in the sadhana, in the practice of kirtan. It becomes more of a genuine spiritual discipline for me. And with this kind of steadiness, then, comes another kind of humility, a second stage of humility. And this is more of a, a humility that arises from the soul, because when this kirtan becomes constant, it becomes steady, it becomes fixed, it becomes something that's done without distraction. When the mind does not become distracted, one doesn't feel tired, and so forth from the chanting. Then what's happening is the soul, if you will, the self, is coming out from beneath the oppression of the mind and the life that uh, a sense-ruled, mind-ruled life dictates. The self comes out, just peeks out. And there's there's such a new kind of energy with that, an enthusiasm. 
and a kind of spiritual humility, not a mental or intellectual humility that was in the previous stage, but a spiritual humility. It's a humility that's based on the fact that, as I say, the self is actually coming out from beneath the mind and meeting on the ground of consciousness itself the absolute, rather than through the filter of the mind, thinking about it, intellectualizing about it, doing some spiritual practice, kind of breaking through, if you will. And so there's a meeting between, if you will, the finite and the absolute on the ground of consciousness. And this brings about, as I say, a kind of a spiritual humility. What do I mean by that? When Chaitanya Dev, he talked about it, he said, Trinadutisunichena. He said, actually those who chant seriously and who aren't distracted and who understand that such spiritual practice, this is really how I should spend the better balance of my life, my time. This is what life is for. Such persons on this stage, he said, who want to chant, uh, do kirtan seriously for fruit, for praying, for love, for real spiritual attainment, for enlightenment. Although there are no rules for chanting, those who want to chant seriously will adopt certain things that will be helpful, favorable circumstances they'll gravitate towards and so forth. So he said in terms of decorum, behavior, he said, well, we misbehaved before, we should properly behave. And this is the crux, the basis of proper behavior, adopting a humility. And while it's a kind of behavioral mandate or code of conduct for the serious kirtanir, at the same time, as I say, it's a kind of humility that comes from the soul. It comes from the meeting on the ground of consciousness between the finite and the infinite. I think you can understand this philosophically pretty easily, that if the finite, as it approaches, means ourselves, the infinite, something's going to happen. We're going to realize what it means to be in touch with the infinite, and we're going to feel infinitely humbled by that. As I've said before, if one of you was God, and I realized that I might say, oh my God, God is sitting before me. I would feel a little bit humbled, almost pushed back. So the closer the finite comes to the infinite, the more as a coming out of the, the its very being, the very being of itself, its humility will radiate. So again, this is a quality of virtue coming not from the mind intellect, but from the soul itself. It's a natural, if you will, condition of the freed soul. I don't mean to say that by constant chanting alone, complete freedom will come. Yes, it will, but it will, it will take time. There are other stages of development, but this is the beginning where we actually begin to stand not on the ground of the mind and the intellect, but on the ground of consciousness itself, firm footing there. And we find, oh, I'm not alone here. I've said before that if you come out from beneath the world of the mind, then you find that you're very small, but there's someone else that's very big and very qualified whom we can have camaraderie with, and that's very comforting. 
the false comfort of material life is that I get to think I'm big when actually I'm quite small, even materially speaking, what to speak of in terms of a, a larger picture of reality. We're very small. So the natural condition of a soul, self, a unit of consciousness, unfettered by mind and intellect, is a state of humility. And there's power in this. There's power in this. The idea of, of being humble and having power, are, as I said in the beginning, perhaps appear a little bit at first contradictory, but it's this kind of humil- real humility brings with it confidence. What I'm coming in touch with is so great that it humbles me, but I'm coming in touch with it. <laughs> and it's comforting also. So there's a confidence that comes with this. Confidence and humility, they go together. Sometimes we find a person that's confident, and we might think that he's proud, after all. <laughs> We're talking about humility, and I'm sitting up here, <laughs> and you're sitting all down there. You might think, what is he talking, humility? He's sitting up there. He should be sitting down there. But that is another thing. Humility brings confidence. And it reveals also, as it manifests from the soul, more about the soul, that its nature, the self's nature, is to serve. And so service has different forms. It may be someone's service to sit here, another person's service to sit there. From sitting on this position, being told to do so, yes, I do it. It may not be comfortable. I would rather sit there, but how this has been told to you, now that it's been revealed to you, you should sit there and tell it. So we have to have a kind of also a dynamic idea about humility. Again, we're talking about humility in relation to the absolute, not in relation to a hungry tiger. Should we be humble before a hungry tiger? If you just have a very ecstatic idea of humility, you'll think it's problematic in some circumstances. If I'm alone in the forest with a hungry tiger, shall I be humble or maybe something else I should? It won't work. But no, when we speak about humility in relation to the absolute, we find a way in which humility works in all circumstances because it's, there's a dynamic application of the principle such that even in some circumstances, the humble may appear to the uninformed to be proud, sitting on an elevated seat, for example something like that. So, in this way, I wanted to speak briefly and give you a chance to ask any questions about humility. Two stages of humility, again, in relation to Nam Kirtan. One stage in which humility arises out of clear thinking, out of the mind and intellect. Another stage, as we apply ourselves with that kind of humility in relation to the name, and the name stays with us, and our kirtan becomes steady, and the heart becomes cleansed, and the self starts to come out. A natural humility arising from the soul itself. So much so that it's almost almost synonymous with what the self is. The self is a unit of loving capacity. When it's properly centered, properly reposed on the perfect object of love, Godhead, that it can fully express itself in terms of its being a unit of loving capacity. And ultimately, this loving capacity expressed fully in relation to the supreme object of love is 
said in higher circles to be this kind of love synonymous even with humility. So I'm taking it a little bit now to to another level. I don't want to go there. That's another discussion. So again, I said a lot of times I speak a little longer, so I want to speak a little shorter this time. I'm never satisfied. <laughs> I always have to make another point for my own self that I feel like I actually said something because I'm always going through these thoughts. So I'm waiting for a new one to come and then when it comes, I think, now nah, I said something more. But for some of you, of course, you haven't heard any of these points, so it might be a short circuit here. So I want to stop there and ask you to venture any questions or comments. Yes? You mentioned about um, the difference between being, uh, using humility in the right, I guess, context, as opposed to being humble in front of a hungry tiger. God, that's something that mm-hmm. I've never been able to clearly to uh, adapt or adjust. You know, I've always just, I've always uh, kind of associated humility with, uh, in some ways, either like a low esteem or um, mm-hmm. or uh, a, a more of a fearful experience. Um, could you talk a little bit about about overcoming those? Conditions, like you, you were saying, coming from your maze and the karmic gifts you've all received and, and uh, crossing over into, I guess, would be the first degree of humility of clarifying that. Well, I think that um, what's required in order to do that is to have good company and to hear about these kind of things. A little bit of knowledge, of course, goes a long way. Just like anything, let's say you want to love. So if you want to love, a little knowledge will help. Right? <laughs> or you could really go down the wrong path in, in the name of love and, and, and cause yourself a lot of problems. You could fall, just materially speaking, you could fall in love with someone, but then if you stop and reason, you might think, this is not a good idea. This is not, this is, you can see where it's going to end up and it's going to be problematic, dysfunctional, and so forth. A little knowledge is helpful. If you want to love completely and fully, then also, yes, some knowledge is required. I mean, if you want to love completely, you have to find an object of love that's capable of reciprocating fully, right? So if you want to give your, give of yourself fully, you have to find that um, center where that can take everything. Let's say, again, we talk about love. If you want to love, someone wants to, uh, um, you know, mother's holding her baby, gives the baby to her son, says, hold the baby, I'm going over here. Baby starts to cry. Uh, Her brother wants to express love so that she doesn't cry. So he picks up the the bottle and gives her the bottle. But the reason that she's crying, he doesn't know because he doesn't have knowledge, is that she's got gas in her stomach. So he's giving the bottle. It's an act of love, but because it's not informed by knowledge, it's having an opposite effect. Do you understand? So a little knowledge is helpful, important, if we want to love. Where to express our love and what does love mean? I said it before, a tiger loves a young girl. A young boy loves a young girl. And a yogi may also love a young girl. I mean, hopefully in the right way. <laughs> a real yogi 
also loves. So a tiger has a certain kind of knowledge. Sees a young girl, and his knowledge is this is food. I love that. <laughs> and a young boy sees a young girl, and he sees a, he's seeing something else, right? He's seeing something else, and he says, I love her. And the yogi, the sage, Rishi, sees a young girl, and says, I love her too. They're all going to express love in very different ways, aren't they? And the ways in which the love is expressed will be relative to the, the understanding, the clear, the, the knowledge that they have of what is that thing called a young girl? What is that? What is it made out of? Where does it come from? So the more knowledge you have, then the more capacity you have love. So similarly with with virtues like like humility, like you say, I mean, people can be appear humble, but it's really a psycho, just psychological. They're psychologically dysfunctional. Well, he's real nice. He's real humble. But the reason he's being humble is there's all these psychological reasons behind it because he was treated a certain way as a child and so forth. And he's not functioning even fully as a fully balanced, uh, psychologically balanced human being. So we all we all suffer from these problems in, in one way or another. Are the motivations behind things can be traced out to psychological dysfunctions, and they, they may look like good qualities, but actually, they're not. It may be working for me that you're humble, <laughs> but it's not working for you. <laughs> not getting you anywhere. So yeah. So then we want to move away from that, but then we come and we hear this is. I'll go to a spiritual practice, and they're talking about being humble. And you just heard from your, you know, counselor that that's your whole problem. <laughs> you have to be more assertive. And so, so we, you know, we're really talking about it on on a, on, a, on a different level. And it's good to be a little psychologically informed these days. Also, a little knowledge again helps. So, if you understand psychologically, materially speaking, psychically speaking, what is a dysfunctional expression of that appears to be humility. Again, that's not real humility. So, I, as I said, the full face of humility, is, or any virtue, is that virtue in relation to the Absolute. So we have to have some knowledge about the Absolute. So we have to hear. Now, now, scriptures are valuable. Saintly persons, their company is valuable. And by keeping that company and in appropriate ways, gathering um, proper conceptual orientation, if you will, knowledge, understanding, and so forth, then um, we can see how to be humble in a dynamic sense, which will mandate, in certain circumstances, that we have to be even aggressive. Let's say, for example, to be humble, then before what? In an abstract way? No. Be humble before God. So that will be what? To do the bidding of God. So if someone says... Uh, wow, I don't believe in that God stuff. Then you just don't go, yes, I'll be humble. You say, no, you have something to say. And then you express yourself. And uh, it may not look like, I mean, one time I had an experience that something like this, and there was a group of people, and somebody said something, and I became very, had a very strong response. And someone said, Swamiji, Swamiji, you're getting angry, that is not good. Swamiji. I said, sit down. <laughs> so, without going into detail, the, the point is, all of these things have a dynamic expression. Even anger has a dynamic expression in relation to the absolute. Let's take, for example, one thing is to lose your temper. Another thing is to 
use your temper. Do you understand? To lose it, to use it. It may look like the same thing, but it's actually quite different. So, again, humility in relation to the Absolute will mandate a dynamic expression of the humility that unless you have knowledge, you may not understand that it's so. And it's just the converse of what we were talking about a minute ago. Someone has an apparent humble disposition, but it's really a psychological dysfunction. It looks like humility, but it's not. <laughs> so it really requires living one's life as if, uh, you know, you're doing the bidding of, of God or Guru, have some guidance in life. My humble opinion is that we should be concerned that whatever we are doing in life, whatever we are thinking in life, that someone of spiritual consequence, of real spiritual standing, knows about it, cares about it, would agree with it. It's hard to do, perhaps, but that's how we, that will, will cause our progress. Have healthy concern. What I'm doing, does anyone of spiritual consequence, do they have any connection with that? Would they be concerned with that? Would that be... This is humble. You can understand. <laughs> so, it's very different from the psychological kind of dysfunction in the name of humility. You have to be really involved in serious spiritual discipline. I'll tell you another thing about humility philosophically that may help illustrate this point. A great teacher of mine once said that humility is the absence of the enjoying spirit. Interesting concept. What he meant is this, that God is like enjoyer. We are like enjoyed. And it's really great to be enjoyed, if you think about it. Think about it. <laughs> it's, it's great to be enjoyed. That's what you, everybody really wants, is to be enjoyed. That's the greatest enjoyment. When you know you're making somebody else happy, you're just like feeling great. I told a joke and everybody laughed. They're feeling good. I made them feel good. So I'm feeling good. <laughs> On so many levels, you can think it out yourself. But that's our nature, to be enjoyed. So when we can be fully enjoyed, we can be fully happy. But when we try to enjoy, then it's just the opposite. And who will agree with us? Everything has some connection with God. Our business is to excavate that connection, if you will. When we see a thing, a person, from the lens of our mind, and we think, I'm an American, I'm a male, I'm this age, this is what I am, and I'm seeing through this filter. Then I see another person through that filter, and then I want to relate to that person based on that mask that I'm looking at the world through, that lens that I'm looking at the world through. And because that mask is, is this made up of the mind and senses that place demands upon me, I feel myself in a needy condition. I need. My body has needs, right? My mind has demands that it places upon me, and I feel that I have to meet them in order to be happy. So I'm going around looking at the world through this mask, through this lens, 
And it's one of, of being needy and needing to take things, to add things, to get things. So I see a person, what I can get out of them to one extent or another, what it will be for me. So I'm kind of placing myself in the position of the enjoyer and I'm looking at the world like that. Now, it's no wonder that it's difficult because everyone's just not willing to cooperate because what your, <laughs> what my idea of enjoyment is, it just doesn't go that far for everybody. It just doesn't work for everything to speak of everybody. But that's how we're looking at everything. Here we are. We're consciousness. Body is matter. Okay? So, matter is experienced Consciousness is experiencer. Hey, so I'm superior, if I'm consciousness, we could think, to matter. Matter is experienced. I'm the experiencer, after all. If there was no consciousness, then what would matter? So matter without consciousness just just doesn't matter. (laughs) So we make things matter if you will. But the problem is, it's very interesting, although we're consciousness, we're a tiny unit of this consciousness. So when we're in relation to matter, matter has this capacity to kind of, the whole of matter, if you will, has a capacity to kind of dilute us in a sense. Just like it takes a person to turn on the TV to make the TV matter, but sometimes the TV matters so much that it takes over your life. And that's a problem. So, yes, I'm a unit of consciousness. That's true. And theoretically, I'm categorically different from matter. I'm the experiencer. Matter is experienced. I'm in a superior position. But at the same time, I'm very small and I'm prone to being diluted by the overall power of matter. So, point is this. I may be the subject Matter may be the object, but if I look up, there's a super-subject. It never falls into the position that I'm in, like a reservoir of consciousness, God, whatever, Krishna. It does matter, but the absolute. So, as I look down at matter, and I see matter as something to be used for my purpose, if I look up, I see, oh, I have a purpose in relation to the absolute, to be used by the absolute for its purpose. And so when I start to function in relation to that, then I'm, I'm servant, then I'm enjoyed. You understand? I'm experienced. And then when I begin to look at matter through that lens, matter and people and things start to become friendly to me because I'm not trying to exploit them anymore. Anyway, if I exploit matter, I can't be fulfilled because it's different from me. It's not consciousness. I'm consciousness. Matter is like some forms come together and they disperse. I grab it and it's gone. She married a beautiful guy and he became a couch potato. Whatever. She became an old hag. And everything, just all these forms just transforming in front of us. I bought this, it was great, and the next thing, all that's left is a big bill. And I, the thing doesn't even work anymore. And this is, you know, in the crew ramps, all of them, all material manifestations are like this. We say, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Here today, gone tomorrow. There's nothing to grab onto. No fulfillment we can get from that. It's like a ca- we're chasing a carrot. Just around the corner, the full meal's going to come. But meanwhile, 
We're just getting appetizer after appetizer after appetizer indigestion, indigestion, indigestion. Never the full meal. The problem is we're trying to enjoy matter rather than be enjoyed by God and then see relation, matter in relation to that. So to see the I, the world, through a serving lens rather than an enjoying lens, what this does is it brings the world to life in a way that we could never do by trying to enjoy it. Because when we try to enjoy material manifestations, we in effect take the life out of them because they have a life of their own in relation to the absolute. And we're trying to rather relate to it in terms of this lens of the, of the mind that we're looking at it through. And it's not cooperating entirely. And we're wondering why the environment's not friendly. Because your idea of what enjoyment is is really small. It won't even satisfy you. <laughs> but you want everybody else to, to join on with it. So this is just like ludicrous. Therefore he said, humility is the absence of the enjoying spirit. By giving up the enjoying spirit, if, if, if I try to enjoy something, then I'm superior to it. It's mine. You see? I'm in the superior position. I'm enjoying it. If I give up the enjoying spirit, then I'm off my high horse now. I'm, I'm humble now. So he said, empty yourself out of the enjoying spirit, and again, the soul will come out. Its natural condition is, is humility. So, you want to talk about humility, you talk about, like, give up the enjoying spirit. Well, that's a big topic. How to do that? So as much as we can distance ourselves from, from that, it's kind of a false enjoying spirit, because nobody's really becoming happy. Sometimes a couple people agree, okay, look <laughs> me on this level or for you on that level, okay, we'll go with it. <laughs> I mean, you know, relationships are problematic, but we can't do without them. Again, we should think, we could have a relationship with Krishna. That works. That puts us in a position to have a relationship with everyone, with everything. You see, there's no exploitation. I have no, I like you, but I don't need you. I don't need anything from you. I'm not there because I need a handout. I'm full. And I like you too. <laughs> and I would like you to be full. That's how I like you. Because I could see you are running on empty. <laughs> and I would like you to be full too. So we become that kind of person. That person may be aggressive in his or her campaign, but see how it's, it's devoid of the enjoying spirit. That's real humility. So, what else? Anything else? Yes. What does it mean to chant without offense? There are different kinds of chanting on different levels. So, without any knowledge one can chant. What one may think, oh, chant this, sing that, doesn't matter. It does matter. There is a difference between spiritual chanting and something else, seeing something else. At some level, one may think, that is what, there's no difference. So that person's knowledge is not very developed. That person may chant. But because that person doesn't have proper kind of developed conceptual orientation to the chanting, he or she may equate the chanting with other things, even mundane things. Oh, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola doesn't matter, or Krishna, Krishna doesn't matter. It does matter, actually. That's another discussion, but why? 
So that kind of chanting that's lacking in a developed conceptual orientation as to what the chanting is about will not give the full effect of chanting. And sometimes it's called namaparad. It means, aparad means offense, but uh, it means, uh, these are old terms, but it means that one doesn't have a clear understanding of what it's about so he or she cannot fully participate in it. Therefore, some education, some hearing, some philosophy that will be be useful to help us come to a a kind of a clearing stage of chanting rather than a a stage where we don't do dignity, give proper dignity to, to the spiritual practice of chanting itself. So in the Puranas, there are a list of different types of offenses to the name of Krishna and that can be that one could be implicated in while chanting. But at the same time it's explained that have no fear about this. Chant anyway and keep good company. And these things will become clear. And as they become clear, then again, as I said before, there are no rules for chanting, but at a certain point one realizes, hmm, there's something to be gotten from this, it's very valuable. And there are certain things that can be done it will be conducive to the chanting. And so one starts to change one's lifestyle in such a way that it becomes conducive to the chanting. And this is what it means to overcome offensive chanting. And this first kind of humility that I talked about, this is at the crux of that, making that, that change, kind of a, a humility and an, and an earnestness that comes with some glimpse of understanding through good association of what the opportunity is and then sincerely trying to take advantage of it and so forth. This way, one can chant without offense. It really means with proper understanding. Without proper understanding, there will be offense. But then again, name is very merciful, so child may offend her mother also, an infant, without knowing it. Mother is not going to drop the infant, though. So the only way to overcome the the kind of offensive stage of chanting, if you will, is to keep chanting. To chant with some consistency, try. That's how you overcome. Another question? Yes. I just wanted to talk a little bit about how um, chanting and hearing the names, the names of God, and how that energy in the body. How to enter into a relationship, obviously one of humiliation. <laughs> Not humiliation, humility. There's two different things there. Yeah, you're right. This body consists of its matter, right? It consists of a combination of, of three kind of influences. Matter has three ways in which it influences, the qualities of matter. For example, a material object has a way of making itself known. This is a little abstract, but try to follow me. It exists. We call that sattva. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but sattva, it means clarity, it means it begets knowledge. So a material object has a way of making itself known. That's called sattva. 
on a level of the physical level. Material objects also move. Everything's moving. So that's called rajas. Um, movement. Uh, and then uh, material objects have inertia also. That's called tamas. Now matter has two levels. There's a gross level of matter, which I was just talking about, and there's the psychic level of matter. Like mind, we consider matter also, but it's like subtle matter. And different from both of these things is consciousness. It's categorically different from matter. So when these three material influences manifest psychically rather than physically, then they manifest, sattva manifests as clarity of thought, knowledge, that kind of enduring happiness, not a happiness that's here today and gone tomorrow, something like that. And when these influences, when Rajas manifests in the um, psychic, in our psyche, then it causes us to want to be somebody, to uh, be like, be the president, lead the corporation, to uh, progress materially, and so forth. It's a kind of, again, it's kind of a movement. And when it manifests in our psyche as Thomas, material nature, matter, when this influence comes, then it's uh, kind of fed, unclear thinking about things, not interested in material progress. Some might think he's spiritual, he's not interested in material progress, but really he's just taking drugs and lazy and doing nothing, dreaming up the latest conspiracy theory or whatever, blaming somebody else and that kind of thing. This is Thomas. So this is really the energy of the body, if you will, and the mind. I mean, you could talk about it as so many different things. Airs in the body, that's a different way of talking about it. But these are the real, this is really what the body and mind are kind of made up of. Now, you asked, how does the chanting affect the energy of the body? Right? That was the first question. So this is how it affects it. The influence of Thomas and Rajas starts to go away. This is the first effect that we'll see. Thomas, particularly, has very little utilization. Rajas has some utilization, and when harnessed with a sattvic kind of way of looking at things, then it has more value. So first this Thomas goes away. So Rajas and Thomas, they also manifest as Kama and Lobha. Kama means lust. Lust, I've got to get something. I've got to have something. And uh, lobha, greed. These, kind of, these are expressions, human expressions of these influences. So these, this aspect of the energy of the body that will start to diminish. Those are the, the first signs of progress in chanting. It's like sometimes people want to talk about enlightenment. What is it? Well, a good way to talk about it is what it's not. Right? So, lust, greed, I mean, these things. If we have these things, can I say, be a little bit honest, you know? I mean, I mean if, you know, somebody makes two sandwiches and one's bigger than the other and you're both hungry, which one are you going to take? 
take the big one, <laughs> or you're going to give the big one to somebody else. You know. So we all have some lust, some greed, some avarice, and so. Much as these things are not present in the equation of our life, we must be. Liberation means freedom, right? A freedom from what? From these things. Things <laughs> are problematic. You don't have to. You don't have to just. You know, give some real new age spacey idea of you know. We can be very pragmatic about it, what enlightenment is, at least in this sense, by talking about what it's not. It's freedom from these things. This is, this is how it starts to work. This is how it influences the body. That was your first question. It comes to sattva. Then from sattva, that, that's like the takeoff. That's like the airport. From there, you don't stay in the airport. From there, you go into the sky. So when one's chanting, especially Thomas and Rajas' influence, are largely removed from the body and sattva is predominant, then one has a clear thinking about it. So then one can return to the chanting and can be consistent in the chanting and so forth. And then some taste will come. And then one will be transported, go beyond the mind. It may come back, go beyond, come back, but never really come back, having gone there. Never really come back. Can't make it here anymore. It just doesn't work. If sattva is really influencing your intelligence, one of the symptoms of that is you just can't be happy with the idea of living in a world where things don't endure. There's just no prospect for you there. You just can't get enthusiastic about it. You understand? So these kind of things happen. Now there was a second part to your question. Do you remember it? Uh, how to approach it with... Um... How to have a relationship with... Yeah. Well, I would say, in my experience, that uh, under good guidance, somebody who's done that, that, that would be the most important thing that, in, that I found in my life. I'll leave it at that. Anything else? Yes? You said that um, Krishna's name contained a shakti. Hmm. Does that mean that, that Radha is present in his name? In one sense, there's no difference between Radha and Krishna. So in that sense, yes. You understand? Because love of Krishna and Krishna are one. <laughs> so, in other words, the kind of love that Radha has is what causes the Absolute to appear as Krishna in such a charming way. So we're so charmed by that love that it does this to Brahman, makes him dance. Krishna says, Radhikar Prem Guru Ami Shishonata. The Prem, the love of Radha, is my Guru. Ami Shishonata. And I am her dancing disciple. Oh my. This is the, as another talk. We talked about the power of Humility, the power of love, through the power of Radha's love. This is a whole topic, the purity of this and so forth. It's causing the absolute that is sometimes thought to be still and not moving like the material world all the time. You can't get your balance. causes that Brahman to move, to dance, to lose his balance, its balance, something like that. So that love that is personified as Radha 
in this sense, is not different from Krishna. Otherwise, all of the Shakti, Krishna is the source of all Shakti. So, what is Radha is within Krishna. But in order to fully experience that, she's manifest. Two souls, two one soul and two bodies. So yes, all the Shakti of everything is in Krishna. Radha is in Krishna. But in order for Krishna to experience himself more fully, she comes out. It's like sugar is sweet, but it can't taste itself. It needs a taster. It's a very complex theological discussion, perhaps not appropriate for this setting. We've had a nice talk, nice questions. I appreciate it very much. So maybe we chant a little bit more, a couple minutes, and then spiritually socialize.